0: Uh, Thank you very much for coming along. It's very much appreciated. The parable of the solicitor and the poet. To help resolve a protracted and escalating insurance claim following a collision between his car and another motor vehicle, a poet employs the services of a local solicitor. The case requires four or five personal visits to the solicitor's office, above a bank overlooking the town square. During the course of which, and despite never having been asked directly or volunteering details of his day-to-day activities, it occurs to the poet that he has been recognized. Words and phrases begin to enter the solicitor's conversation. Delivered with a grin and a wink, and sometimes within air quotes. Phrases such as, apologies for the mixed metaphor. (laughs) Or, if you of all people will excuse the pun. Eventually, on what is scheduled to be the final appointment, the solicitor utters the one sentence his client had hoped not to hear. The dreaded, actually, I'm a bit of a poet myself. (laughs) Later that day, the poet drives home. On the passenger seat next to him are the finalized, signed-off legal documents bound in a pink ribbon. And outweighing them by several kilos are two shoeboxes full of poems. (laughs) Poems handwritten on legal false gap in green ink, which the poet, being a poet, has of course agreed to read and comment on. It's a service he'll provide for nothing, such was the unspoken expectation, even though the other document riding next to him in the vehicle is the solicitor's bill for several hundred pounds (laughs) to be settled within ten working days. It is then, with a familiar sense of resigned obligation, that the poet sits down some days later to dig through the strata of accumulated verse And then with a growing sense of hubris and sympathy, as he realizes after the third or fourth villanelle that the poems were written out of loss, following the death of the solicitor's wife. The poems, though cliche-ridden and sentimental, cliche and sentimentality being the dual frequency carrier signal of the inexperienced poet, are painfully sincere. It reminds the chastised poet of many of the affirming statements he's made over the years about poetry as the ultimate democratic art form, requiring little more than pen and paper and a working knowledge of the alphabet, and how poetry offers a natural refuge for self-expression during times of emotional disturbance. He's also reminded of some of the poems which proved so pivotal and persuasive when he was first exposed to poetry, when discovering how much power and force could be stored in and retransmitted by such compact shapes. Poems as the Duracell batteries of language, the ones which defy some basic Newtonian principle in the sense that, with the best ones at least, their potential energy seems to increase over time. Methought I saw my late espoused saint, begins John Milton, seeing, in his blind state, his deceased wife appear in a form of visitation, not unlike the dream vision experienced by the speaker in the medieval poem Pearl, a quarter of a millennium earlier. Also pale and faint, also vested all in white, pure as her mind. Trusting to an autobiographical reading, Milton's evocation and near beatification of either Catherine Woodcock, his second wife, or his first wife, Mary Powell, who died the year that Milton was said to have lost his sight completely, is one such miracle fuel cell poem, whose voltage would seem to have increased dramatically since Dr. Johnson casually dismissed it as a poor sonnet, suggesting that former students of this university are not always right. The mournful tone and lovelorn voice of Sonnet 23, as it's come to be designated, appealed to me as a determinedly gloomy young man moping around post-industrial northern England in a willed state of post-punk melancholia. Looking at it again in the calmer days of middle age, what strikes me about it now is the not-so-subtle preferment of the self, the promotion of the bereaved over the deceased. Me, I, and my we meet within the first line alone, then me again in line two, then a thumping, capitalised mine trumpeting the commencement of line five, given further emphasis by the indenting of preceding and following lines. And although poor Catherine, probably, or poor Mary, possibly, is given her due through the middle and later furlongs of the poem, as it transitions from octave to set-set and from pagan to Christian imagery, It's the poem again in the closing line. It's the poet again in the closing line who plays the final card. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. Abandonment might be too strong a word to describe the concluding sentiment, but there's definitely a good helping of one of poetry's staple ingredients, self-pity. And to my mind, the poem is more convincing because of it, or perhaps more honest, or more real, or indeed more confessional, exquisite emptiness being a truer representation of loss than the idealizing or pedestalization of the lost. It's something our solicitor hadn't really considered, judging by his own offerings, which were more eulogy than elegy green in more than just their ink. A suite of remembrance poems written over 300 years after Sonnet 23 testifies to the idea that while poetic styles evolve and bifurcate in many radical directions, its core subjects tend to remain the same. We have nothing more or nothing less to say about things now than we did then, only new ways of saying them discuss Douglas Dunn's collection Elegies is dedicated to his late wife Leslie Balfour Dunn and although the phrase does what it says on the tin wasn't in common usage when the book appeared in 1985 it's a useful indication of its contents the collection is pertinent to this lectures eventual subject poetry's position in the actual world. Inasmuch as elegies transcended the usual reception afforded a poetry collection, even a good one, winning the overall Whitbread Book of the Year. That prize has since morphed into the Costa Book of the Year, a gentrifying act that has shifted its association from the tavern to the coffeehouse. Though it's still essentially a beverage endorsed award <laughs> run by the same parent company. The award meant it was deemed not only the best book of poems in the country that year, but better than the best biography, the best children's book and Holy of Holy, the best novel. Maybe it was deemed as readable and comprehensible as its competitors in those other categories, not something that can always be said of poetry. And as much as anything, the judges might well have responded to its unusual approachability. It is, in many ways, the classic slim volume as we came to think of it in the 80s. A pocket-sized eight inches high by five inches wide, three ounces in weight, trademark Faber and Faber livery, literally, framing an elegant woodcut or etching, card covers, enclosing 64 printed pages on matte paper carrying a presentiment of ageing with most poems fitting comfortably within a single page of which the poem Birch Room strikes me as especially typical. She was four weeks dead Dunn begins the second stanza somewhat tersely. She was four weeks dead before that first green haunting of the leaves to come, thickening the senses with old hopes, an uncoerced surrender to the story of the spring. From the second floor, husband and wife would once sit watching nature create a furnished dusk, and later, confined by illness to an even higher story in the building, already ascending into a more ethereal realm, His wife wishes she could still see the trees, our trees, belonging to the couple as a shared possession and belonging to the real world, living organisms rooted in earth. If only I could see our trees, she'd say. Presented within inverted commas as reported speech, pedants and detractors might wonder at the poet's wife's aptitude for talking syllable-perfect iams, and might wonder the same again when she next speaks two lines later, just as counter and defenders might find within the penultimate line a justification for such prosody in the apparent invitation to rearrange for the sake of decoration. Change round our things. "'if you should choose to stay,' she says. And so the fourth and final stanza runs as follows. "'If only I could see our trees,' she'd say, "'bed-bound up on the third floor's wintry height. "'Change round our things if you should choose to stay. "'I've left them as they were, in the leaf light.'" Note that courageous reverse foot in that last phrase. A sudden about-face turn against the steady iambic progression. I've left them as they were in the leaflight. It's as if the poet had broken the fourth wall of the poem through a shift in stress, spinning around to address us directly. The abrupt metrical confrontation serving as a reconstruction of his own cruel exposure to the sudden dappled brightness also the narrow confines of the page have forced the typesetter to carry over the word stay onto a line of its own and the term takes on an unexpected unintentional poignancy when presented as a solitary expression in physical isolation as verb as noun as invitation as imperative (coughs) A further consequence of that turnover is to shunt the final line into its own space, privileging the griever over the departed once again. Dunn, the last figure on stage in the final scene, just as Milton had the last word before the curtain came down. Dunn, spotlit by daylight, Milton forsaken for the night. Both are me-thought poems, and how could they not be? The next poem in Elegies is Writing with Light on the Facing Page. Open the book between pages 22 and 23, and sunlight reactivates those two poems of shadow and illumination, of black marks against a white or, by now, yellowing page close the book to inter them once again. It's a kind of satisfying materiality that the Kindle has never managed to replicate, despite the inflammatory promise of its name. Ditto its superior, the equally non-combustible Kindle fire. <laughs> the all-new paper-white Kindle seems to have conceded these limitations and gone back to the drawing board. Other electronic readers are available (laughs) and similarly two-dimensional. Returning to our parable, the poet compiles a long letter thanking the solicitor for sharing his work, commenting on his brave and heartfelt verses, and gently addressing some of the shortcomings of the poems through positive criticism and suggested reading, including Milton, the Pearl Poet and others. He posts his letter and receives in reply no thanks whatsoever, not even an acknowledgement of receipt. Though five months later, an envelope does fall onto his doormat bearing the name and logo of the practice, with a note from the solicitor pointing out that due to an earlier miscalculation, there were still outstanding charges relating to the case and for the sake of balancing the books additional to the original fee could the poet please send a check at his earliest convenience for the sum of six pounds and eleven pence still in possession of the two shoe boxes full of poems and with winter coming on <laughs> you've got there before me. (laughs) The poet makes his first visit of the year to his wood-burning stove. (laughs) Momentarily, let us imagine his face lit by the flickering glow of flames. Let us consider that just for a few heartwarming minutes the books were indeed balanced. One of my themes today I say this almost 2,000 words and 20 minutes in, as if you drifted away, which you might have, or like a presenter on Test Match Special, welcoming back listeners on long wave, who've been temporarily rerouted to the shipping forecast or the daily service while the scoreboard ticked over. One of my themes today is the situation of poetry. It's standing in this world Which after almost 30 years as a practicing poet, practicing in the Gravesian sense of being forever apprenticed to an unachievable goal, I'm still as curious and concerned with as I was at the outset. However, I range back and forth in these lectures, from Milton to Douglas Dunn, from Cadman to the latest foil young poet of the year, it will be a recurring theme of my appointment here at Oxford. Four years from now, if I'm still here, if I haven't disgraced myself to the point of dismissal or expired in the meantime, it's still my intention to be pursuing this question, puzzling over the position that poetry and poets might occupy in the early phases of the 21st century, and positions they've occupied in the past. Some of you, with your brilliant degrees we'll be well into marvellous, well-remunerated careers by then. In the city, perhaps, or even as solicitors. <laughs> You'll be standing in the nose cone of the gherkin, or at the pinnacle of the shard, or in a high office in Inner Temple, looking northwest along the vector of the M40. Or you might be flying over Oxfordshire in the b- business-class section of the plane, in front of that little grey retractable veil which separates two worlds, where the seats are a little wider and the crew a little more obliging. It'll be 2019, a Tuesday afternoon in Trinity term, and you look yonder or look down and suddenly think, I wonder if he's still there. (laughs) Banging on about it. Poetry, it beguiles and perplexes. The Monday after my election to this position was announced, I was in Lime Street Station in Liverpool, waiting for a train back across the Pennines and decided to conduct a little non-scientific market research in WH Smiths. Liverpool, European Capital of Culture 2008, a city extrovert in nature characterised by an overt interest in the humanities and the arts, revelling in dialogue and relishing the playfulness and possibilities of words, a city proud and practised in linguistic self-expression. W.H. Smith's, the nation's foremost high street newsagent, and although not exactly a Waterstone's or a Hatchard's or a Blackwell's, still a vendor of books as far as the general public concerned, and this particular branch located on a station servicing passengers about to spend time in a relatively distraction-free environment, a captive audience in a cornered market. Forgetting whatever trite, centrally justified italicized platitudes were printed within the dozens of cellophane-wrapped greeting and sympathy cards, I can report that on the shelves of that shop, there was not a single book, magazine, periodical or journal that carried any contemporary poetry. And this in a selection that covered some pretty niche territories. In fact, if the titles on offer were anything to judge by, Subjects more popular than poetry include wood-turning, bus-spotting, and practical (laughs) pig-keeping. The remaining unsold copy of Literary View contained no published poetry, nor did it review any that month. Poetry, it intrigues and bemuses. As a subject, it thinks a great deal of itself takes itself incredibly seriously, but the status and regard it affords itself rarely seem to be reflected in the civilian population. Poetry, it compels and repels. Collections of poetry are published to universal indifference, and yet the very number of people in this venue today say something about its abiding importance presumptuous of me to have written that sentence in advance. (laughs) But if there had only been three people in this room, I would have used the attendance figure to make the same point. (laughs) That to the vast majority of people, even to the majority of readers, it seems an irrelevance, or occasionally a joke. Two recent performances by the actor Ray Fiennes illustrate the point. In the Wes Anderson film, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Fiennes plays the dandified concierge and occasional gigolo, Monsieur Gustave H, whose habit of quoting ornate rhetorical verse at moments of high drama draws scowls and yawns from both allies and enemies alike. In his portrayal of Jack Tanner, in last year's National Theatre production of Shaw's Man and Superman. The boot was on the other foot. This time, it was Fiennes' turn to scowl and yawn as the bandit Mendoza quoted reams of vapid romantic verse composed for his true love Louisa. He recites in rich soft tones and to slow time is Shaw's stage direction before Mendoza declares, Louisa, I love thee. I love thee, Louisa. Louisa, 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 I love thee. One name and one phrase make my music, Louisa. Louisa, 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 I love thee. Mendoza, thy lover, thy lover Mendoza. Mendoza adoringly lives for Louisa. There's nothing but that in the world for Mendoza. Louisa, Louisa, Mendoza adores thee. Shaw writes, Tanner, all but asleep responds with a faint groan. <laughs> Mendoza summarizes the situation. "Doggerel to all the world, heavenly music to me. Poetry, it enriches and it embarrasses. If I had a pound for every time someone had sent me this card with the name Frank replaced with the name Simon, <laughs> I'd be sitting at the front of that plane on the other side of the (laughs) all-important retractable veil. Mocked for writing poetry, poetry which in turn mocks those not worthy of its complications and elevations, as detective David Mills finds out in a scene from the David Fincher film Seven. Trigger warning here, colorful language on the horizon, Anyone not wanting to hear it uh, should do as Odysseus' shipmates and bung their ears with beeswax for the next minute or so until the coast is clear. Following a hunch that a serial killer is modelling his modus operandi on ancient texts and having crossed the road from the public library and with rain pounding on the roof of his car, Mills, played by Brad Pitt, is less than five seconds into his reading when he slams the book in his hand against the steering wheel and offers the following critique of the divine comedy and I quote fucking Dante goddamn poetry writing faggot piece of shit (laughs) adding a final and exasperated fucker to his list of analytical terms before flinging the book into the back seat. His outburst carried echoes of a classmate of mine from secondary school where the English O level exam included a blind criticism, now sensitively or nervously rebranded as the unseen paper, in which pupils are required to analyze a poem they've never previously laid eyes on. The poem in front of me in the summer of 1979 was a piece called The Golden Plover, The Golden Plover, which I've never managed to find since, and may well have been concocted by the chief examiner, (laughs) entirely for study purposes. From James Edmund Fotheringham Harting's An Ornithology of Shakespeare, one of only about a dozen books in my parents' house when I was a child, Sandwiched between Pears' Cyclopaedia and the concise Oxford English Dictionary on the top shelf of the Bureau, I happen to know that the golden plover was a bird. A bird not actually mentioned by Shakespeare, but listed as a rain bird by Harting, hence pluviavis for its reported habit of becoming restless prior to a downpour. It's a trait which Shakespeare ascribes to another species in, as you like it, act four, scene one, more clamorous than a parrot against rain. But my classmate was convinced that with its flashy wings and estimable velocity, the golden plover was an American car. (laughs) He was humiliated by the poem and has remained wary of poetry and even hostile towards it from that day. Poets like to glory in the backhanded compliment of being the unacknowledged legislators of the world, but the truth is that to most of the world they are simply unacknowledged. It calls to mind our solicitor again, something of a legislator himself, or at least an agent of the legislature. What he really sought from the poet was not a reading list and a few writing tips but confirmation that he was worthy of poetic acknowledgement himself. When no such affirmation was forthcoming, he resumed normal transactional relations with the world by dispatching an invoice. If poetry makes the news, it's usually because someone has embarrassed themselves or fallen foul of the rules. Witness the election for this post in 2009, and witnessed the unseemly goings-on at the Poetry Society two years later, essentially an in-house industrial dispute which wouldn't have raised an eyebrow had it taken place in a commercial office or a factory, but one which became an irresistible catfight in the eyes of the media. Friends of mine, with no interest in actually reading poetry, booked ringside seats at the extraordinary general meeting to see genteel poets losing their tempers. A version of Sayer's law seems to come into play where poets are concerned, in which the intensity of feeling generated by any dispute is inversely related to the potential gains, i.e. sniping is so rife and aggressive amongst poets because the stakes are so low. And yet the most highly esteemed among us inherits a resting place at the heart of one of our most sacred and iconic temples. So when a birth in the stonework of Westminster Abbey was recently made available for Philip Larkin, BBC Arts editor Will Gompertz duly raised himself to his apparently appreciable height, did something with his extraordinary hair, and popped up on national news to relay the fact that Larkin would be sleeping for eternity with the canonized best of them. Meanwhile, the living bumble on. It's not for want of trying. Every year, there are an uncountable number of attempts to raise poetry's profile above the horizontal. We even have a National Poetry Day fighting for attention in a crowded October schedule of awareness-raising initiatives, including World Animal Day, World Smile Day, Seed Gathering Sunday, and Humphrey's Pajama Week. (laughs) Enterprises abound, and of all the efforts to improve poetry's stature within society, hike up its potential in the marketplace, and alert the general public to its benefits, Competitions and prizes are seen by many as the most effective. I've mentioned the Costa Prize with its individual category and grand slam setup. The two other major annual prizes, as far as they self identify, are the T.S. Eliot and the Forward. The T.S. Eliot Prize, in keeping with the outrageous theatricality of its benefactor, I would left a space there for ironic titters, (laughs) has embraced a Britain's Got Talent format whereby the shortlisted authors perform before the judges and a live audience on one night and the winner is announced the following evening. Echoes of the school spoken English competition there. The forward prize, while less of a best-in show, is still delivered courtesy of the live announcement. The author of the winning book receiving heartfelt applause from the generous, smiling losers and their entourages. Whether the prizes are meaningful or fair, or the equivalent of in-house industry awards, I'll leave. Certainly, they rarely provoke more than a few column inches of reaction in the press the following day, unless, of course, someone has misbehaved. The winner of the 2015 Forward Prize for Best Poetry Collection and shortlisted for this year's T.S. Eliot Prize is Claudia Rankin's Citizen. Citizen has become this year's poetry event, winner also of at least two big prizes in the States and, get this, a New York Times bestseller, up there with John Grisham and Tyler, Jeffrey Archer and the likes. As an indication of his success Citizen is now one of those books with a rosette-like sticker on the front announcing its accolades, and at least one of Rankin's previous publications has been reissued with the phrase author of Citizen on the front cover. Poetry periodicals, magazines, and journals tend to be ruminative rather than reactive, pensive rather than prompt, and are often slow to offer their responses to new books. And like most places in the English-speaking world, poetry gets pitifully few notices in the UK national press. Though when and where it does, we're blessed with decent reviewers by and large, tactful critics who can translate some of the arcane specificities of poetry for a non-specialist general reader. Kate Kellaway is one such reviewer and she began her appraisal of Citizen in the Observer by stating that the question of whether the book is poetry or not becomes insignificant as one reads on. The historical complaint against any kind of poetry that didn't practice recognized techniques was often summarized by the phrase chopped up prose, a criticism that can't be leveled at Rankin's book since much of it retains a conventional prose appearance. But rather than being insignificant, the extent to which it is classifiable or even recognizable as poetry is intensely relevant, given Citizen's subtitle, An American Lyric, a subtitle she also applied to her book, Don't Let Me Be Lonely, published over a decade ago. Section one is delivered in paragraph form detailing, wounding examples of everyday racism. Some casual, others calculated. Each one presented like a moral conundrum. For example, because of your elite status from a year's worth of travel, you have already settled into your window seat on United Airlines when the girl and her mother arrive at your row. It's a syntactical style reminiscent of lifestyle magazine questionnaires, as if a multiple-choice set of responses might follow. Section two is even less obviously poetic, being a polemical essay based on the American tennis player Serena Williams, written in matter-of-fact prose. Within it comes the book's most arresting idea and its underlying motif, Zora Neale Hurston's line I feel most coloured when I am thrown against a sharp white background, of which Glenn Ligon's stenciled canvas, says Rankin, seemed to be ad copy for some aspect of life for all black bodies. That canvas is actually reproduced in the book, along with other visual images, including a frame-by-frame replay of Zinedine Zidane's headbutt to the chest of Marco Matarazzi in the 2006 World Cup Final after an alleged racist racist jibe. This colour contrast, exemplified by a black tennis star in the lily-white world of tennis, is Rankin's central concern. And in a voice that is sometimes infuriated and sometimes incredulous, but often despairing and dejected, her paragraphs eventually fragment into sentences and the prose eventually disintegrates or crystallizes towards the poetic. Any lyricism to be found here is sporadic or ironic or nonconformist or subverted or insists on a poetic that runs contrary to the historically determined definitions of that term. Certainly the concept of the line as a bar of poetic notation appears to carry little weight here, since the layout on the page differs between editions, governed, it would seem, by Parkinson's law, rather than the customary laws of poetic composition. Form here is reduced or essentialized to the presentation of black words against the white background of the page, mirroring the poet's argument. Throughout Citizen, Rankin refers to herself in the second person. The effect is to universalize, to implicate the reader in the process of societal marginalization, and to insist on an empathetic involvement in the incidents being documented whether to feel that stark monochromatic contrast or to live the experience of a person or a people reduced not just to the status of second-class citizens but to a kind of nullified invisibility. Occupied spaces and unrecognized lives, a seat not offered on a train, the seat next to Rankin on an airplane which remains unoccupied, the cover image of the book showing a detached black hoodie-style hood without a face set against whiteness. One other way that Rankin contradicts or defies the idea of lyric and the classification of poetry is in her use of an all-encompassing generalisation. It's preceded by an evanescently presented list of names, victims of race crimes, in memoriam, fading from black to grey, then to nothing, as it descends the page. Chillingly, the list has been added to in subsequent editions, with spaces reserved for future victims, like a macabre roll of honour, anticipating more deaths through unchanged circumstances. Rankin then offers the following three lines on a single page. Because white men can't police their imagination, black men are dying. What I find unusual about that statement is nothing to do with syntax or layout, but the manner in which the issue at hand is abridged to a form of binary logic or Boolean algebra constructed around a pun on the word police. Police or is rendered as a broad slogan of the type that poetry often seeks to dismantle or penetrate rather than utilize. Rankin may well have allowed for it in an earlier line. Occasionally, it is interesting to think about the outburst if you would just cry out, she says, a Zinedine Zidane moment, perhaps. And yet, I cannot work much closer to the slub writes my predecessor at this lectern. Geoffrey Hill, in his poem, a Precy or memorandum of civil power. In his collection, a treatise of civil power. A book full of insights and asides regarding the art or act of poetry, should we choose to read closely enough. That word, slub. In my neck of the woods, it means a fault or flaw in a thread or yarn a word common to the textile industry, hence the slubber's arms, a pub off Bratford Road in Huddersfield. Attending to the delicate fibres and filaments of language, he means, doesn't he? Picking carefully over its strands, being superconscious as to its warp and weft. Who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe? Caution's Milton, book one, lines 648 to 649, Paradise Lost, warning against the use of the blunt instrument in the confrontation of a problem. Baudelaire envisaged readers to whom the reading of lyric poetry would present difficulties, wrote Walter Benjamin at the opening of his On Some Motifs in Baudelaire. Maybe Rankin envisaged a similar readership or wanted to reach out beyond the valued cognoscenti towards readers too busy to try to unravel tightly bound knots of language. And the fact that Citizen doesn't look like a book of poems, either from the outside or within, may well have proved part of its popularity. Its continued topicality has also led to its continued appeal. For example, through Rankin's referencing of the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, the reverberations of which are still being detected on cultural and political seismographs across the United States and beyond. Citizen carries the mood of public awareness and has been carried by it. But even beyond the newsworthy and the relevant There are signs of vitality, strength, and even popularity in the world of poetry. Voices making themselves heard above the usual low-level background hum. Over the last couple of decades or so, a poetic movement has emerged, or re-emerged, through clubs and events, a movement which thrives in live environments, particularly at summer festivals such as Glastonbury and Latitude, most of which now have a dedicated poetry venue. I've been to those festivals, stood in the mud, sprawled on the straw matting, perched on the arms of old settees at some of the shabbier, chic events, and have witnessed audiences of hundreds, sometimes thousands, with a huge hunger for unaccompanied language. Some of its practitioners in those environments are outcasts from the music or stand-up comedy arena for whom poetry is a vehicle rather than a vocation and some of what is practiced is facile rubbish. Others though have resisted the cheap gags, the vacuous life-affirming statements, the soliciting of the instant response and the over-emoted serving of already over-egged puddings. And among those who have surpassed their contemporaries Kate Tempest is the most prominent. Once categorized and perhaps demeaned by the literati as a performance poet, Tempest's reputation has burgeoned with the very force of her surname to the point where the poetry establishment has been unable to ignore her. Her across-the-board appeal has seen her appear on one of the main stages at Glastonbury Festival and received the Ted Hughes Award for New Work in Poetry in close succession. And along with Professor Brian Cox, whose universal atomic abundance seems greater even than that of hydrogen, (laughs) she is someone who regularly appears across the full spectrum of BBC radio networks and frequencies. Tempest recently published a collection of her poems, Hold Your Own, with a notable poetry publishing house, a book which either inadvertently or unashamedly lays bare the foundations of rhyme and repetition around which her poems are constructed. For example, in On Clapham Pond at Dawn, end words include new, true, you, 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 Through rooms, through, view, you, 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 do, new, fuel, and you. And it would be easy to criticise Tempest on the basis that the visual printed manifestations of the work fail to convey that winning combination of verbal dynamism and disarming innocence which has become a trademark and which has also won her so many admirers. But to demote her to a literary subset on that basis would be to insist that the printed form of poetry is its primary mode, with performed or spoken versions playing a supporting or secondary role, poetry having a day out, as it were. A churlish position to take, I'd argue, because even post Caxton and for a long while, poetry continued to be a spoken or recited art, with an emphasis on sonic and acoustic properties. And even through its most bookish and mute phases, there have always been performers and performances. And before that, when it was conducted around the campfire or at the temple or in the amphitheatre, poetry's instinctive address was to the ear, not the eye. And writing was a means of warehousing and distribution rather than the product itself. So in those wider and longer terms, we could even think of Kate Tempest et al as defenders of poetry's original practices, traditionalists, if you like. At another level, Kate Tempest has put the body back into poetry, bestowing a work with a presence and physicality which, once seen and heard, goes on inhabiting the poems through to their printed iterations and delivering a tantalizing sense of human proximity when many other poets operate at a remote distance and from behind the fire curtain of the book, practitioners of a plastic art. Tempest's poetry is made of squeezed air, not smeared ink. The numbers are staggering. Millions upon millions of people have watched film clips of spoken word poets in action, in quantities and at a frequency that the poetry world has never previously dealt with. Recalibration has been necessary. Noughts have been added. The internet has created and goes on creating a transformation in poetry, a silicon revolution initially as a means of sharing and circulating information and work, but more latterly as a self-referencing cosmos, a beginning and an end and a middle as well, justifying itself to itself by virtue of itself. Hence, Alt-Lit, a movement that flourishes via websites, blogs, forums and film clips, populated by poets, readers and critics whose very identities are sometimes online constructs. The virtual has become the real, or at least the norm. I openly admit that much of this kind of thing is like a dog whistle to me, going on beyond my range of hearing. And even following links from one internet site to another, I haven't really been able to determine if alt-lit is a serious and coherent poetic school or just a few computer literate graffiti artists with too much bandwidth at their disposal, suffering from the burden of free choice in the twilight of Western decadence, goofing around in the dorm after a few joints. Another movement that tends to be mentioned in relation to new trends and directions in poetry is that of conceptualism or uncreative writing. A discipline that encourages the appropriation, manipulation, and reframing of existing texts rather than the production of new work. Kenneth Goldsmith, its leading figure, recently gave a 30-minute reading constructed entirely from Michael Brown's autopsy report, offering it as a kind of found poem, it seemed. A performance which drew an angry response on social media including a death threat, and poetry was newsworthy again. I mentioned before the physical qualities of Douglas Dunn's collection Elegies, partly to acknowledge the relationship between its material properties and my recollection and even appreciation of the poems. The smell and texture of the paper, the heft of the book, how it fits in the hand or where it sits on the shelf, whether a poem lies verso or recto, whether the encampment of the stanza occupies the top or middle or bottom of the page, the typographical accent of the chosen font, which becomes almost paleographic in memory. Where I was when I read a particular line, a synesthesia of memory and meaning, more pronounced when the experience was unforeseen and unforgettable when it delivered a shock to the system and produced a change in sensibilities. Like purchasing Geoffrey Moore's Penguin Book of American Verse and encountering and being encountered by the likes of Kenneth Koch and Ed Dorn and Gwendolyn Brooks and developing almost overnight A preference for the speaking and singing voice in poetry over the written or cerebral voice. A partiality for the demotic over the rhetorical. A predilection for poems commissioned by the mind but designed by the mouth. Three decades later, a similarly unsolicited unsolicited pleasure arrived in the form of the Breakbeat Poets, New American Poetry in the Age of Hip Hop, which belly flopped through my letterbox this summer. I don't know who sent it, why they sent it, or more worryingly, where they obtained my address. (laughs) It will no doubt come as a surprise to many of you here today that living in South Huddersfield isn't in fact a life of unalloyed gratification and lotus-eating luxury. But one thing that it does afford is a level of privacy usually associated with a witness protection program. (laughs) And I'm currently reviewing security protocols in and around the Armitage compound. True to its uninvited intrusion, the breakbeat poets is brusque in its stance and confrontational in its approach. Poetry, and often art in general, is taught through the lens of a Eurocentric, white supremacist, boring-ass canon, remarks co-editor Kevin Koval in the introduction. It's also unapologetic in the scale of its convictions, claiming that hip-hop made poetry an everyday thing before Billy Collins hip hop made poetry relevant and hip hop saved American poetry trigger warning again stormy language ahead pull your hats over your ears because I'm still quoting here made it new fresh made it a something anybody gave a fuck about Keats Writing to John Hamilton Reynolds in 1819, famously remarked that English ought to be kept up. Not propped up, I hope, in order to meet some masonically agreed standard of practice, but kept in touch with the changing dynamics of English as it evolves and mutates, as it's shaped by internal pressures and external influences exposure to which has increased exponentially since the Romantic era, particularly since the advent of electronic media, which has played a huge role in turning hip-hop into a lingua franca practiced by many word artists the world over. And yet the poem from this anthology, which caught my eye, is largely unrepresentative of the collection as a whole, and has a less obvious relationship with hip-hop in terms of its rhythms and registers. Araceli's, Araceli's Gourmet's Elegy in Gold also appeals because it intersects with my thematic undercurrents of remembrance and light and black and white. I wonder what our solicitor might have learnt from its maneuvers and subtleties, from the combination of physical modesty and the extravagances of its ambition. Our solicitor, if you remember him, all those pages ago, in his office above the bank, sitting there on his pile of bullion. Elegy in gold. Earring, tooth, dog breath, shoe, mango fruit or pocket watch. Sunlight on my love's elbow, sunlight in the kettle's steam. We walk in the rubble of the sunk ship's dream, brushing crash site from our hair and dresses. This is the country of the gone away. Harlem, you wear the missing like a golden chain. Coming cold to the poem and to the poet, In some senses, I was back in the examination hall again, as I am today, I suppose, with the golden plover, free to adventure among its lines and stanzas and make of it whatever I could. Elegy in gold dangles there in necklace formation like the chain of its final line. Fashioned and worked into short couplets, The poem opens with illuminated examples of everyday life, commonplace ideas touched by the Midas-like hand of the poet, a gilded inventory linked by half rhymes and internal echoes, a list that becomes more particular, personal, and intimate as it progresses. Dog breath I take to be affectionate, literal even. I'm thinking golden retriever. With the sunlit steam from the kettle completing a picture of domesticity following my true love's elbow my love's elbow sorry these glints and glimmers are illusions mirages because what follows is an abrupt transition a change to a minor key not even anticipated by a grammatical conjunction or preposition where the celebratory tone is immediately undercut by the void of the stanza break between lines six and seven. Kettle and steam find their rhyming counterparts dispersed across two lines, fragmented into rubble and the sunk ship's dream. The trapdoor opens and we're delivered into a post-traumatic landscape among the disappointed and dispossessed. The myth of El Dorado, the barbarism of the slave trade, the drowned hopes of a race, the fallout from 9-11, and the aftershock of major cultural collisions involving the Americas seem to be referenced through those next four stanzas, a chain reaction. It's as if the optimism of those early lines had been projected through some kind of malevolent prism, splintering the light source, not into a spectral rainbow, but into shadow and shade, as if a reverse alchemy has taken place, turning gold into debris and dust, transmuting shine and glow into emptiness and absence. I feel most colored when I am thrown against a sharp white background. Elegy in gold strikes me as a sociological counterpart to the autobiographical sonnet 23 and the photographic negative of Dunn's Birch Room. Not so much a me-thought as an us-thought, an elegy for a people where the golden chain, that ostentatious piece of jewelry, that token of swagger and bling, displayed here as the poem's only overt simile, becomes a reminder an ironic rosary, a bond, a shackle, a yoke, and a bind. Just for a moment, the restrained, elegiac, lyric voice finds a role and a place in the hectic, verbose, fact-fueled, know-it-all world where many things that glitter are not gold. Here endeth the first lesson.